0: Howdy, everybody. The following common law lesson is brought to you by Republic Keepers, where we learn to inform, to educate, defend, and to self-govern. Please visit the website at www.republickeepers.com. Today's discussion is lesson five in our jury training educational series. Hope you enjoy.
1: All right, I wanted to start today with a saying of James Madison's that is at the end of the teaching that we'll have today but i wanted to make sure that we covered it as thoroughly as i wanted to and um, get the information out we're covering the march 28 2011 <laughs> segment uh, of the uh, jury training And so let me just begin with this James Madison saying. I want to read it, and we'll come back to it. Start over. It is proper to take alarm at the first experiment on our liberties. We hold this prudent jealousy to be the first duty of citizens and one of the noblest characteristics of the late Revolution. (coughs) Excuse me. The free men of America did not wait till usurped power had strengthened itself by exercise and entangled the question in precedence. They saw all the consequences in the principle, and they avoided consequences by denying the principle. It's a bit of a riddle, isn't
0: it? Why would you say that?
1: What was the principle?
0: The principle was the government going against them, the people. It is proper to take alarm at the first experiment on our liberties. That's the first thing the government did, wasn't it? (laughs) We hold this prudent jealousy to be the first duty of citizens and one of the noblest characteristics of the revolution. Didn't the people rebel rebel when this occurred at the first sign, or did they wait?
1: This is, uh, you're thinking about in terms of the revolution? Yes. Yes. Okay. I'm reading it as after the revolution. And it is proper to take alarm. He's explaining a prospective action. Uh, <clears throat> here, he's saying it's proper to take alarm at the first experiment on our liberty. Now, for the revolution, you're correct. It was proper. But he is addressing here what I think, and the principle down here is sovereignty. They saw all the consequences in the principle of making the government the sovereign, and they avoided the consequences by denying the principle they made not only the human a sovereign, but in the writing of the constitution, the land was treated as possessing a sovereignty which the government could not get a hold of, okay. And it was, the, and it respects the citizens themselves to be aware of this so that they treat it as a tremendously jealous thing to hold on to and respond passionately in order to not let the, let it be usurped. Now as a curious instrument, another cho- excuse me, another curious choice of words, is the freemen of America did not wait till usurped power had strengthened itself by exercise and entangled the question in precedence. They didn't wait until trials, lawyers, judges, and others, by virtue of having acted, utilizing acquiescence, to gain their power, had strengthened itself by exercise, and then having established precedents that would appear in debates and arguments. Now, this is a very powerful quote here. Um, I'm hoping others can learn to understand exactly what it's attempting to do. So that it's saying, look, if we'd have waited, Lord knows what we'd have had. They went first and quick. But they did have something bad to start with, and that was the Articles of Confederation. So he's still explaining that they were right in not making the government a sovereign. Today, most of the work coming out of Washington, D.C., is built on the premise that it is the sovereign, and it's willing to replace itself as sovereign with one that comes somewhere out of the U.N., first by way of the IMF, then further beyond. justifying raids on Libya by utterances of the Security Council and not the Congress of the United States.
0: Okay, let's go back to the the freemen of America did not wait till usurp power had strengthened itself by exercise and entangled the question of precedence. We've already done that.
1: Here today, me
0: up up from the time that this was written till now, we the people of the United States of America have already allowed the power to be usurped, and the questions entangled in precedents. We've already allowed that, so now we have to stop it and reverse it. Yes.
1: But it doesn't alter this principle. If we're going to be reversing it, we better put this in place.
0: That's right. We need to put the principles in place. And where are the principles enumerated?
1: Well, the big question here is that the sovereignty of the government versus the sovereignty of the individual. It's, it's The issue is collectivism versus individualism it's it's the same old struggle um, that that's been around for years ancient times we have in our biblical side we have expressions come out of babylon which is a sovereign uh type of that has all the power and all the people are subjects to of it, and so on. yep, but I'm trying i I want you to see the statements represent something that ought to be in place now. that, that all the people in the first estate hold this prudent jealousy to be the first duty of citizens. And that same noblest characteristic of the late revolution in their, this prudent jealousy. All right. Now, we're continuing in the chapter. We're dealing about, we're talking about the great charter, the Magna Carta, and all that it has to say about the jury and what the jury must do, and how it should function. Now, here we have, I'll read the paragraph before this, I guess, to understand. The foregoing interpretation of the words nisi per legem terrae, law of the land, are corroborated by the following statutes enacted in the next century after the Magna Carta. "...that no man from henceforth shall be attached by any accusation, nor forejudged of life or limb, nor his land, tenements, goods, nor chattel seized into the king's hand against the form of the great charter and the law of the land." this is enforcing both the law of the land, which predated the great charter, in which the great charter reinforced and the great charter itself. Whereas it is contained in the great charter of the franchises of England that none shall be imprisoned, nor put out of his freehold, nor of his franchises, nor free customs, unless it be by the law of the land. It is accorded, assented, and established that from henceforth none shall be taken by petition or suggestion made to our Lord, the King, or to his council, unless it be by indictment or presentment of good and lawful people of the same neighborhood where such deeds be done in due manner or process made by writ original at the common law, nor that none be put out of his franchises nor of his freehold, unless he be duly brought into answer and forejudged of the same by the course of the law. And if anything be done against the same, it shall be redressed and holden for none. It shall be all reversed and made null. That no man of what state or condition that he may be shall be put out of land or tenement, nor taken, nor imprisoned, nor disinherited, nor put to death, without being brought in answer by due process of law. Another quote. That was 1354. That no man be put to answer without presentment before justices or matter of record, or by due process and writ original according to the old law of the land, and if anything from henceforth be done to the contrary, it shall be void in law and holden for error. This is Statute 42 of Edward III, uh, Chapter 3 and 1368. The foregoing interpretation of the words nisi per legem terai that is, by due process of law, including indictment, etc., has been adopted as the true one by modern writers and courts, as for example by Kent, by Story, and the Supreme Court of New York in 19th and 676 and 4 Hill 146. The Fifth Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. Seems to have been framed on the same idea, inasmuch as it pro- provides that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Whether vel be rendered by and by or and, having thus given the meanings or rather the applications which the words vel per legem teri, will reasonably and perhaps most necessarily bear it is proper to suggest that it has been supposed by some that the word vel, instead of being rendered by, or, as it usually is, ought to be rendered by and, inasmuch as the word vel is often used for et. And the whole phrase, nisi per judicium pariam suorum." Vel perlegam teri, which would then read, unless by the sentence of his peers and the law of the land, would convey a more intelligible and harmonious meaning than it does otherwise. Blackstone suggests that this may be the true reading. Also, Mr. Hallam, who says, Nisi perlegae judicium parium suorum vel perlegam teri. Several explanations have been offered of the alternative clause, which some have referred to judgment by default or demure, others to the process of attachment for contempt. Certainly there are many legal procedures besides trial by jury through which a party's goods or person may be taken, but one may doubt whether these are in contemplation of the framers of Magna Carta. In an entry in Charter of 1217 by a contemporary hand preserved in the town clerk's office in London called Liber Customarum et Regum Antiquarum a various reading et perlegum occurs. Blackstone's Charters, page 42. And the word bell is so frequently used for et that I am not wholly free from a suspicion that it was so intended in this place. The meaning will be that no person shall be deceased, etc., etc., except upon a lawful cause of action found by the verdict of a jury. This really seems as good as any of the disjunctive interpretations. I do not offer it with much confidence. I cite the above extract from Mr. Helms solely for the sake of his authority for rendering the word "vel by and, and not by any means for the purpose of endorsing the opinion he suggests, that legum terrae authorized judgments by default or demurrer without the intervention of a jury. He seems to imagine, imagine that lex terrae, the common law, at the time of Magna Carta included everything in, even to the practice of courts. That is, at this day, called by the name of common law. Whereas such of what is now called common law has grown up by usurpation since the time of Magna Carta in palpable violation of the authority of that charter. He says, Certainly, there are many legal procedures besides trial by jury through which a party's goods or person may be taken. Of course, There are now many such ways in which a party's goods or person are taken, besides by the judgment of a jury. But the question is whether such takings are not in violation of the Magna Carta. He seems to think that in cases of judgment by default or demurrer, there is no need of a jury, and thence to infer that legum terrae may not have required a jury in those cases. But this opinion is founded on the erroneous idea that juries are required only for determining contested facts and not for judging the law. In case of default, the plaintiff must present a prima facie case before he is entitled to a judgment. And Magna Carta, supposing it to require a jury trial in civil cases, as Mr. Hallam assumes that it does, As much requires that this prima facie case, both law and fact, be made out to the satisfaction of a jury, as it does that a case, contested case shall be. Excuse me. As for a demurrer, the the jury must try a demurrer, having the advice and assistance of the court, of course, as much as any matter of law arising in a case. Mr. Hallam evidently thinks there is no use for a jury except where there is a trial, meaning thereby a contest on matters of fact. His language is that there are many legal procedures besides trial by jury through which a party's goods or person may be taken. Now, Magna Carta says nothing of trial by jury, but only of the judgment or sentence of a jury. It is only by inference that we come to the conclusion that there must be a trial by jury. Since the jury alone can give the judgment or sentence, we infer that they must try the case because otherwise they would be incompetent and would have no moral right to give judgment. They must therefore examine the grounds both of law and fact, or rather try the grounds of every action whatsoever, whether it be decided on default, demoral, or otherwise, and render their judgment or sentence thereon before any judgment can be a legal one on which to take a party's goods or person. In short, the principle of Magna Carta is that no judgment can be valid against a a person's goods or person, not even a judgment per cost, except a judgment rendered by a jury. Of course, a jury must try every question, both of law and fact, that is involved in the rendering of that judgment. They are to have the assistance and advice of the judges so far as they desire them. But the judgment itself must be theirs and not the judgment of the court. <clears throat> as to the process, as to process of attachment for content, It is of course lawful for a judge in his character of a peace officer to issue a warrant for the arrest of a man guilty of a contempt as he would for the arrest of any other offender and to hold him to bail or in default of bail commit him to prison to answer for his offense before a jury. Or he may order him into custody without a warrant when the offense is committed in the judge's presence. But there is no reason why a judge should have the power of punishing for contempt any more than for any other offense. And it is one of the most dangerous powers a judge can have because it gives him absolute authority in a court of justice and enables him to tyrannize as he pleases over parties counsels witnesses and jurors if a judge has power to punish for contempt and to determine for himself what is a contempt the whole administration of justice justice or injustice as he if he choose to make it so is in his hands and all the rights of jurors witnesses counsel and parties are held subject to his pleasure, and can be exercised only agreeably to his will. He can, of course, control the entire proceedings in, and consequently the decision of, every cause, by restraining and punishing everyone, whether party, counsel, witness, or juror, who presumes to offer anything contrary to his pleasure. This arbitrary power which has been usurped and exercised by judges to punish for contempt has undoubtedly had much to do in subduing counsel into those servile, obsequious, and cowardly habits which so universally prevail among them and and which have not only cost so many clients their rights but have cost the people so many of their liberties. In any summary punishment for contempt be ever necessary, if any summary punishment for contempt be ever necessary, as it probably is not, beyond exclusion for the time being from the courtroom, which should be done not as a punishment, but for self-protection and the preservation of order, the judgment for it should be given by the jury, whether the trial is before a jury. Where the trial is before a jury, excuse me, and not by the court for the jury, and not the court are really the judges. For the same reason, exclusion from the courtroom should be ordered only by the jury in cases when the trial is before a jury, because they, being the real judges and triers of the cause, are entitled if anybody to the control of the courtroom. In appeals courts, where no jury sits, it may be necessary, not as a punishment, but for the self-protection and the maintenance of order, that the court shall should exercise the power of excluding a person for the time being from the courtroom. But there is no reason why they should proceed to sentence him as a criminal without his being tried by a jury. If the people wish to have their rights respected and protected in courts of justice, it is manifestly of the last importance that they jealously guard the liberty of parties, counsels, witnesses, and jurors against arbitrary power on the part of the court. The idea that the word vow should be rendered by and is corroborated. If not absolutely confirmed by the following passage in Blackstone which has been which has before been cited, speaking of the trial by jury as established by the Magna Carta, he calls it a privilege which is couched in almost the same words as that of the Emperor Conrad two hundred years before Nemo beneficium suum perdat. Nisi Secundum Consuetudium Denum Nostorum Judicium Parium Suorum, which says, No one shall lose his estate unless according to the custom of our ancestors and the judgment of his peers. If the word bell be rendered by hand, as I think it must be at least in some cases, this chapter of the Magna Carta will then read, that no free man shall be arrested or punished unless according to the sentence of his peers and the law of the land. The difference between this reading and the other is important. In one case, there would be at first used some color of ground for saying that a man might be punished in either of two ways, according to the sentence of his peers or according to the law of the land. In the other case, it requires both the sentence of his peers and the law of the land, the common law, to authorize this punishment. If this latter reading be adopted, the provision would seem to exclude all trials except trial by jury, and all causes of action except those of the common law. But I apprehend that the word bell must be rendered both by and, and by work, that in cases of a judgment, it should be rendered by and, so as to require the concurrence both of the judgment of the peers and the law of the land. To authorize the king to make execution upon a party's goods or person, but that in cases of arrest and imprisonment, Simply for the purpose of bringing a man to trial, veil should be rendered by or, because there can have been no judgment of a jury in such a case, and the law of the land must therefore necessarily, necessarily be the only guide to and restraint upon the king. If this guide and restraint were taken away, the king would be invested with an arbitrary and most dangerous power in making arrests, and confining in prison under pretence of an intention to bring to trial. My goodness, what an interesting choice of words. Having thus examined the language of this chapter of Magna Carta, so far as it relates to criminal cases, its legal import may be stated as follows. These, No free man shall be arrested, or imprisoned or deprived of his freehold or of his liberties or free customs or be outlawed or exiled or in any manner destroyed that is harmed nor will we the king proceed against him nor send anyone against him by force or arms unless according to That is, in execution of the sentence of his peers and or, or, as the case may require, the common law of England, as it was at the time of the Magna Carta in 1215. That concludes the lesson for today.